0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. 2 Samuel chapter three. So if you have your Bible, you can open it there. If you need a Bible, get the attention of one of the ushers as they're making their way up and down and they will pass one to you so you can follow along. Um, it's one of those things with people that, uh, speak. Um, you know, you, you they tell us that you know you should always say something that's gonna grab people's attention and you begin, you know, a story, a hook, something, you know, to draw them in. And you know, this week all I'm gonna say is that you're either really gonna like the study or you're really gonna hate it. And 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 the way that you respond to it is probably gonna reveal what side of it you're on. And and that's all I'm gonna say by way of a hook, but I want to read the text. And then, and then we'll get into it. And so I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 20. We left off at the end of 21, uh, but I'm going to start at 20, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to get into what God wants to say to us tonight. Uh, we'll pray after we read the text. It says, so Abner came to David, to Hebron, and 20 men with him. And David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go, and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, an alliance, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he was gone in peace. Second time it says that. And when Joab and all the host that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he is gone in peace. Third time it says that. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that you have sent him away and he is quite gone? You know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you do. And when Joab was gone out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Syrah but David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Nur. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there not fail from the house of Joab one that has an issue, or that is a leper, or that leans on a staff, or that falls on the sword, or that lacks bread. David pronounces a curse on the descendants of Joab, and he says they're going to have issues, they're going to be screwed up, they're going to be suicidal, they're going to be poor. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner because he had slain their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, tear your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And the king himself followed the bear or the casket. And they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, died Abner as a fool dies. Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept over him again. David knew that Abner had gotten right with God and right with David and right in himself, and that he died in that place. And when all the people came to cause David to eat meat or food while it was yet day, David swore, saying, so do God to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun be down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel. And I am this day weak, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, Be too hard for me, the Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. And so, Father, we just come to you now, and Lord, we read this story that's dramatic and uh, saddening and shocking, um, but very real. And we just pray, Lord, that you would make application to us and help us, Lord, to see kingdom truth And see our lives through its lens. And we pray that you would help us to understand, to interpret, and apply it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We left off at the end of last week uh, with the salvation. And I say that in quotes. It's the salvation of Abner. We know that Abner had been conflicted within himself. He was a high-ranking servant in the administration of Saul, the previous king. And after the death of Saul and the obvious transition of power to David by the hand of God, Abner was resisting that move of God and holding the power in himself. And after a long conflict with himself and with the people of David, Abner finally defects from the kingdom of Saul and he makes an alliance with David. And we saw the picture in it that the Holy Spirit was painting of salvation, uh, of how a person will go from trying to create their own king that they can control, to coming to the king that no man can control, but that is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It was the salvation of Abner. We see that he ceased from the inner conflict of trying to hold on to what he can't keep, and he has embraced what he could never earn. He's received mercy from the hand of David, an amazing mercy. A mercy that he didn't receive from the hand of Joab. Now, remember, Asahel was David's nephew, though he was Joab's brother. And yet, David does not kill him. David receives him. David welcomes him with a feast. Abner has been freed from the hold that power had on him. He's no longer bound by the burden of trying to control outcomes and govern his own life. He's free from the the, the pressure of trying to be something he's not because he hasn't been given that from God. And the rush of freedom and the rush of peace that we've experienced, those of us that have come to our king, to Jesus, he knows it full well. Three times in the passage, it says that Abner went out in peace. And what a peace it is when a person comes to the true king and realizes there is mercy there, and there is a place there, and that there's purpose there. And he is loose now from the unfit yoke that he was under, and now he is in the place that he's to be. Now, I remember what it was like for me. I remember when the words of that great song, I once was blind, but now I see. I remember when those words made sense to me for the first time, when I knew what that song was about. Because I had, like Abner, gone from that place of not knowing the true king, of being in darkness, of trying to control my own life, to coming to Jesus and having my eyes open to the truth of life and knowing what that meant. I remember it. I remember the feeling of, for the first time, knowing why a Christian would trade the tangible pleasures of the world for a relationship with an invisible and mysterious God. Because that always puzzled me before, is how could you do that? But I remember understanding that for the first time. I, I remember when when I realized for the first time why a Christian would risk having an uncomfortable conversation about that God and about that life with someone who knew nothing of it, knowing that they would probably be insulted and ridiculed And and I thought, why would they do that? But then I understood why they would do that. Because once you drink that water, and once you come to that well, you can't help but share it and tell other people about it. And I remember being overwhelmed by the pure water of the word. When the word of God came to life and God spoke to me through it and he opened my eyes to truth and he showed me myself and he made sense of life and of things that were, the things that are, and the things that are to come. And I remember all of that, what it was like. And I remember in those early days thinking to myself that this is what every Christian is experiencing all the time. That they're drinking this water that I have now found that's been revealed to me, and that this is their life. And I remember in those early days going to church, and I would think that everybody had this rush of peace and freedom that I was experiencing. And I was just exploding on everybody I could, all the things that I would, was learning. And, and I would preface my excitement by saying, I know, I know you've heard this a thousand times, and I know it's probably incredibly annoying to you, but this is also brand new to me. And this is amazing. And I would share with them the things that I had read that week and learned that week and the things I was growing in that week, you know, unashamedly, but yet apologizing for my, my zeal. And, and then it began to, to dawn on me after a while that, that not everybody was, was experiencing that same e- explosion that I was experiencing. I, I thought they did, but they, they weren't, you know? And, and, and I started to question that. as like, why isn't everybody, why isn't it? And, and then I, I realized later... That it isn't that they didn't have the excitement anymore. It isn't that it got old. It isn't that the well ran dry or that they didn't know. It's just that it just became normal. It becomes normal. You know, because this is the life that we have now. It's like when Jesus said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, not as the world gives, right? That's something that is ours. It's not like all of a sudden, like you're just walking and all of a sudden, like he just drops a peace bomb on you. You're like, you were all anxious and all of a sudden it's like, boom, oh, thank you. I was waiting for that. No, it's something that we walk in, you know, and then when that peace is unsettled, that's what causes us to question and say what's going on. You know, it's something that just becomes normal, You know, And so it's like if you were to go to outer space. If you go to outer space, you're immediately going to feel very strong and very light because something changed. But that change is going to become normal, and soon it's going to feel like regular life. And if you come back to Earth, you're going to know that something was different in outer space. And, And so these Christians that I was interacting with in those early days, they understood where I was because they had been there. I didn't understand where they were because they had been doing this now for a little bit of time, okay? Now, I had at that time, I was 19 years old, I had no wife, I had no kids, I had no job, no career, no house, no rent, and no bills. That was my life, okay? Now, that just magnifies peace, right? When you have absolutely nothing to worry about or to take care of, you know, it's like peace on steroids, if that is even such a thing, you know, that's what it was, that's what happened, all right, no responsibility, but as time goes by, and as you begin to walk with God, things begin to complicate, see, Jacob went out with nothing, but pretty soon, that became a wife, and then two wives, and then two wives and two combines, and then 12 kids, and then flocks and herds and a career and a job and relationships and complications. And what starts simple becomes complicated over time. And isn't it ironic that the blessing of God upon a life actually brings a burden with it? And you think, well, wait, is that, does that actually make sense? You know that, but yes, it does. The word actually glory that we, we talk about the glory of God and how he, he, you know, drops glory. The word glory actually means weight. And, and when God begins to bless your life, there is actually a weight that comes with it because there's a responsibility that comes with the things that he entrusts us with. And with responsibility, there always comes a level of stress. And that's why Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Okay, he didn't say, I'm going to take every yoke off of you and your life is just going to be always easy. He said, you can loose yourself from the yoke that doesn't fit and that's not yours. And you can take the one that I have designed for you that just so happens to be a double yoke and I will get under it with you And you and I will now walk together, and as I lead your life, grow your life, and fill your life with things, I am going to carry with you and help you shoulder the load of that which is to come. That's why he says that to us, that we're to do that. Jesus also would say that wheat and tares, that is wheat, which is good, and weeds, which are bad, they grow together. Which means that with all the good things that come into our life from the hand of God, there are also things that maybe aren't so pleasant that grow along with those things. We understand, right? He gives us kids. That's a blessing. Kids throw up at night. That's not. You know what I mean? We, he blesses us with a job and, and a career. That's a good thing. It comes with people, <laughs> right? And that's not always such a good thing. Wheat and tears grow together, and you can't remove one without hurting the other and Jesus would say you gotta let them both grow together all the way up until the end and so there is good things that come but there is stress that comes along with it and when there's complication complication causes confusion if it's not handled the right way and sometimes Christians build faulty systems to support their stress all right You know the story. If you don't, you're going to have to read it because I'm not going to preach it, okay? But Mary and Martha, the the, the two sisters that Jesus visited while he was in his ministry, they were sisters. And Jesus came into their house. And Martha was in the kitchen. And she was preparing the food. She was keeping the house clean. She was making sure the guests were comfortable. Mary, co-owner as far as we know of the house, her name was on the invitation. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to what he said. And Martha started getting a little agitated and started banging the pots and pans, sending the subtle clues like, hey, this meal's not going to cook itself. You know, they're out there singing, you know, here I am to worship. She's in the kitchen saying, I'm doing the dishes. You know, there, there's two things going on. And, and so finally, Martha snaps a little bit, and she comes out, and she says, Jesus, would you please tell Mary to get up We have and Jesus looked at, and he said, listen, he says, Martha, you're troubled with many things, and there's one thing needful, and Mary has chosen that better part, and it's not going to be taken away from her. And then the passage just kind of ends. It's all over right there at that, that you know, at that thing, and it's kind of left of us the thing. but here's what I, I, I got to realize, and this is going somewhere, I'm not ranting right now, <laughs> is that both Martha and Mary were right, and they both were kind of wrong. Okay, because without Martha's stress, there would be no place for Jesus to be that day having lunch. Somebody has to pay the bills. Somebody has to prep the food. Somebody has to clean the house, okay? And so Jesus wasn't rebuking Martha's stress. He was commending Mary's system, all right? Martha's stress provided a place for Jesus to stay, but Mary's system is what Martha needed if she was going to survive, Because if you don't handle the pressure that comes when God begins to bless your life the right way, then you will start to veer off and slowly over time, things will begin to break down. And if you go too long on a faulty system, understand things are going to start to break down. Listen, I wonder if Joab in the text, in the story, I wonder if Joab remembers what it was like when he first came to David. Because it says of Joab, it says that that he was one of those that was distressed, discontented, and indebted. Those were the original group of people that came to David when he was fleeing from Saul. And in David, Joab found a leader. He was a misfit. He didn't fit in anywhere. And he found in David someone who could bring out the value of what he truly was. He found a leader. He also found a friend, someone that he could be close with, someone that he could lean upon. He also found a place. There was something for him to do that was fitting with who he was as a man and who God made him to be. And I wonder if Joab, if he could try, if he could remember the peace that he had when he first came to David and he realized, like, okay, this is all right. This is good. Life is good. I'm in a good place here. The hope that he had, realizing that this young man, that I get to be a part of this, he has a future. He has a call on his life, and I get to be here. The blessing that it was. Now, I know that part of him remembers what that was like, because he's very well aware at this time in our text tonight of how vulnerable Abner is, having just experienced that for the first time himself. Joab had a lot of privilege. He was talented. He was strong. He had opportunity. He had ability, okay? Between Joab and his brothers, the one that died and the one that was still alive, they were among the best men that David had. And Joab liked being close to David. That was a privilege for him to be able to be that close to the one who would be king. He enjoyed the position that he was growing into And he enjoyed the cause, which was that God was raising up a king and establishing a kingdom. That was a blessing to Joab. He tasted the power that would come with that position. And over time, as always happens, a cause develops into a system. And it has to. Okay, you can't just have chaos. There's an administration that's being formed. There's an order that's being formed. All of that's happening. And with or without realizing it, slowly over time, Joab's place in David's administration became more about the system and less about the cause. It became more about what he got to do and what he wanted to do rather than what God was doing. Now, ultimately, okay, the nation and the kingdom, all of it was about God. God was forming something, God was raising something out. It was his plan. But under the hood, there was an administration, there was organization, there was structure. You could even say there was a business. Things have to get done. And Joab had an integral part of that, and and he could see that his ability qualified him for a unique position, and he had an ambition. He wanted to be the general, and he will become the general. He's going to figure out how to do it. You'll see it unfold in the chapters that are to come, okay? But as time passed for Joab, as he went from being a misfit who found his place And now a system is beginning to form and a structure and a hierarchy is beginning to play out, all right? Coupled with the stress of life, the battles that he had fought, the people that were around him, the death of his brother and the pain that that brought and all of everything else that was going on, Joab is still in the cause, but he's further from God and it's become more about the system for him. And slowly... Uh, Maybe all at once, I don't know. But slowly or uh, assuredly, the people that were coming in were no longer joining the cause. They were a threat to his place. They were not comrades, they were competition. And so rather than seeing people that were coming into David's fold as being that which would advance David's place and advance what God was doing, now these people are competition. These people are threats to my position, to my ambition, and where I want to go. Now, Abner, this man that we see who's now experienced this triple peace, you know, the hymn that talks about God's double peace. You know, he's got the triple peace of God that's been just dropped into his life. Abner has gone from an antagonist of David to an ally of David in in an instant. He's changed. He's on a different team. And with the coming in of Abner now into David's administration— The reach potential of David's kingdom has multiplied 10 times because he has been the king over one tribe, but Abner has the ability to reach all of the other 10 tribes and the Levites that are interspersed throughout, and he has the influence and the reach to be able to bring them into an alliance with David so that he can be the king over a unified Israel. That's an amazing level of influence. For David, that's awesome. It's an amazing opportunity to see the kingdom united like that. But for Joab, it's a threat. It's a threat to what has become in him an agenda and a desire and probably a little bit of an obsession. He wants to be the general. And he doesn't have maybe the ability, the talent, or the influence that Abner would have. If Joab is respected by one tribe, but Abner is respected by ten and a half tribes, then that greatly reduces the potential that I'll come into the position that I so greatly want. Now, if you're new to the story, Joab and Abner have met before. This isn't their first interaction. Abner did kill Joab's brother, but he did it. Legitimately in battle and didn't want to. You read it very clearly in the text that Asahel was chasing Abner, and three times he was warned, Listen, I've got the high ground, turn away. Don't don't follow me. I, I don't want to have to face your brothers. Please don't do this. And Asahel in his zeal chased Joe. I mean, Abner pushed the, the spear backwards, Asahel died. He didn't want to do it. He did it in self-defense. It was legitimate, and it was in wartime. We know that, okay? Joab capitalizes on an honor opportunity, and he kills Abner because he felt he could justify it because Asahel had been slain, but David knew why Joab did this. Because way later on in David's uh, administration, when he's about to die and pass the torch onto his son Solomon, he says, hey, what Joab did was rotten and wrong and don't let him go down to the grave in peace for what he did. David knew full well that this was personal. This was not about honor killing. This was revenge, but it was more than revenge. It was, hey, this is my position. Don't step back. On it, Okay. Now, Abner received great mercy from David and Abner had been coming out of Saul's administration, which was based on suspicion. It was based on position. It was based on, you know, positioning and all. all he'd come out of that and he came to David and he experienced something totally different. In David, there was mercy. There was acceptance. There was forgiveness. There was a place. And so when Joab says to Abner, he says, hey, buddy, come here. I want to talk to you privately for just a minute. Let's bury the hatchet. Abner's like, man, I can't believe life could be like this. I can't believe that people would genuinely love each other and forgive each other and and that that we can move on. And it's not about revenge and politics anymore. This is great. And in the moment of his greatest naivety, for a good reason, he goes with Joab outside the gate. And Joab there takes and underneath the fifth rib, and he kills Abner in cold blood, murders him right there because of it. He says it was for honor, but David knew it was personal. Okay, now think about it. This wasn't supposed to happen. I mean, if you're Abner... And, he, and he's looking at Joab there, just as he's bleeding out and dying. He's going, going. Wait a minute! This isn't this isn't supposed to be the way it goes. Like this is supposed to be David's kingdom. You're supposed to be different. This was. There's peace here. This is of God. This is the kingdom. We're Christians. Like wh- why? What are you doing? Like why did you just? And, and there's this confusion. Like this is not. You're. We're supposed to be on this. You're spo- And then he dies. Let me ask you a question tonight. Have you ever been? crucified by christians why is it that christians are so brutal to each other have you ever wondered if you're new let this be maybe a little bit of a warning okay is that there's more joabs than davids in the body of christ you know why is it that christians can be so much more like a pack of wolves sometime than they are than a flock of sheep it's amazing, but God, he gives us this power and he gives us this, this, this knowledge and this wisdom and he gives us this freedom then and, and even this commission where he says, just go, I'm giving you gifts, I'm giving you opportunities, now just go use them. And then he 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 takes his hand off and he, he says specifically that he's gonna do that. He says, I'm gonna give you these things, I'm gonna go on a long journey and then when we settle up in the end, we'll talk about everything. But he gives us this freedom and why is it that, that we use it Rather than to build the kingdom and to bring people to Christ and unify under him, why is it that we use what he's given us to hurt each other and to malign each other and to slander each other and to propagate ourselves over one another and to create this whole thing where there's pecking and positioning? Why do we do that? Why are Christians that way? And I wonder why Christians can be so fierce with each other. I read another article, uh, it was just this week, it was published just this week, and it was in the mainstream news, which I do still look at some sources of mainstream news, probably more for entertainment than information, you know, just to keep my, I don't want to be completely clueless, you know, so what's going on there, but this was, this was the article, it says Preachers, this is the title, Preachers and their $5,000 Sneakers, Why One Man Started an Instagram Account Showing Churches Wealth. Well, I usually don't click on articles because the headline usually tells the little story. I clicked on it, okay? I was like, all right, I want to read it. Let me read you a couple excerpts from this, okay? It begins this way. First words in the article. From his couch in Dallas, Ben Kirby began asking questions about the lifestyles of the rich and famous pastors when he was watching some worship songs on YouTube on a Sunday morning in 2019. While listening to a song by Elevation Worship, a megachurch based in Charlotte, the evangelical churchgoer noticed that the lead singer's Yeezy sneakers were worth nearly the amount of his first rent check. Kirby posted to his, listen to the number, 400 followers on Instagram, hey, Elevation, how much are you paying your musicians that they can afford $800 kicks? Let me get on that payroll. Plus, Kirby wondered, how could the church's pastor, Stephen Furtick, one of the most popular preachers in the country, afford a new designer outfit nearly every week? With a friend's encouragement, Kirby started a new Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers, posting screenshots of pastors next to the price tags and the street value of shoes they were wearing. Within a month, The account had attracted 100,000 followers, 400 to 100,000 in a month. On his feed, Kirby showcased, uh, I'm not going to say the names of these pastors, one pastor's $3,600 Gucci jacket, another's $1,250 fanny pack. You never know what people are into, you know. Uh, Another one's $2,500 Richie crocodile belt. I'm probably saying these names wrong. That's how unfashionable I am, you know? And, and, and he considers another former President Donald Trump's most trusted pastoral advisor, who is often photographed in designer items, a preacher's and sneaker's content goldmine posting a photo of her wearing $785 Stella McCartney sneakers. Okay, so so this is this is the article and this is what this guy did. You know, so I'm I'm reading this thing, okay? Now, let me say I get it. I understand what happens in in my heart and in yours when we think about a pastor spending $2,500 on a belt or $5,000 maybe on a pair of shoes? I get it. I understand simplicity. I understand Jesus saying him that has two coats, let him give to him that has one. I, I get it. Carry neither script nor bag for your journey. So so don't think that I'm like justifying everything that's going on out there and all of this stuff. I am certain there's probably somewhere in it, some corruption. But let me ask a couple of questions just to give the other side, just to balance it out a little bit, okay? Number one, where did the money come from, and are you sure that you know that this was church people's money that was used to buy expensive things? Okay, A lot of these people are very talented people, and they have their hands in a lot of other things. And a lot of times, the money comes from other places. Should they not be able to use it? I'm just asking the question. And why is it that as Christians, sometimes the same people that we commend capitalism, we condemn a Christian minister when they benefit from its system? It's something to think about, okay? By the way, uh, well, I'll go on. Question number two. Are you sure, Preachers and Sneakers author, are you sure that Jesus is offended by this? Are you sure that Jesus and I'm going like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe they're wearing those shoes on stage right now. Are you sure that, that he's bothered by this? Because I, I remember there is a story in the New Testament where there was a woman who had a jar of perfume that was worth a year's salary. How much do you make in a year? That's how much that was worth. And there were some people in the room that was judging her based on what she was doing and and what was going on in that. And I wonder what, you know, the guy who wrote this book, what he would say if he saw this woman in the very presence of Jesus carrying this bottle of perfume, are you sure that Jesus is really upset by this? Are you certain of it? Because what happens if you get to heaven and we're getting rewards? We're going to be judged and we're going to get reward for the things that we did. And you, to 100,000 people, did what, you know whatever, and all of a sudden, that worship leader, that pastor stands before Jesus, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things, be ruler over many things, enter into the joy of the Lord. And he doesn't bring up the shoes at all. And you're like, oh, no. Oh. I made it the crux of my ministry to condemn the guy with the sneakers. I spent all of my time trying to cut him down, and Jesus doesn't seem to mind that he did that. That's, I, I don't want to be in that place. You know, we live in a time right now where more, 100,000 people apparently or more will pay attention to someone if they wear $5,000 sneakers. Way more people are attracted to what that guy's saying than the guy who wears the same outfit every other week, right? I mean, and we just happen to live in that time. And if Jesus wants to use that in some way, though it maybe is flawed somewhere, is it my place to say that it's right Or that it's wrong. I'm not so sure that it is. I don't want to be that guy. Okay. Now. What if. Question number three. God is using those churches and those people. To bring people to himself. What if God is using that in spite of the fact that maybe it's flawed. Now I'm cutting that down. I'm tearing into something that God is maybe using. And why am I doing that? Okay, how many of you here are rattled when you hear the song Rattle? Okay, uh, you, I, maybe you haven't heard it yet, okay? But when that song comes on my Pandora, I almost fall down. Like, it's amazing. And, and the things that it does and reminds me, and the depth, even of the theology in it, that just ask the man who is thrown on the bones of Elijah what happens, you know, or, or what, what God can't do. And ask the stone that was rolled away in the tomb in the garden what happens when God's the mood. You go like, man, we serve an amazing God. And the guy, but the guy was wearing $5,000 sneakers when he wrote that song. <laughs> oh. Question number four. Are you sure that you're not guilty of the same thing? Let me, let me read the end of the article, okay, just for a little perspective. It says this. It says, since starting the Instagram account, Kirby has been dipping his own toes into the evangelical marketplace entering a world that he has so openly critiqued. Like church leaders, his income is partially dependent on his podcast advertising and book sales, and he sells merch based off the brand. The difference, he said, in a clear clar- later clarification, is that he doesn't leverage his position as a congregation spiritual leader asking people to donate to a ministry that he builds uh, as his personal brand. He has had... His own brushes with fame, texting with people such as once major megachurch leader, da-da-da, befriending this other guy of the TV show community and attending a Super Bowl party thrown by NBA star Carmelo Anthony. See, it can happen to you too, right? Be careful before you judge. Listen, Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 19 says this. It says, and it should go up on the screen. It'll say this. It says, when you besiege a city and making war against it, you shall not destroy the trees by forcing an ax against them. He says, for you may eat of them and you shall not cut them down for the tree of the field is man's life to employ them in the siege. Okay, in other words, God says, if a tree is bearing fruit, do not cut it down. Don't touch it. If a tree is bearing fruit, don't cut it down. If a Christian is bearing fruit, Don't cut them down. If a church is bearing fruit, don't cut them down. If you don't know the full story of what's going on in someone's life, when you see them doing something that you don't understand, don't cut them down. Don't crucify Christians. And last comment on this I didn't mean to take so long on it, but last comment on this. If you are fighting from your couch, did you catch that in the article? First words in the article, while sitting on his couch. Do you think that that was not intentional by the author of the article? I mean, us that do this kind of thing, we we obsess over words, all right, from his couch. If you're fighting from your couch, just maybe check yourself. (laughs) Abner in the text, in the story, reminds me a lot of the Apostle Paul. Abner and Paul have a lot in common. Let me give you some of the things. First of all, they were both adversaries that turned allies. Paul against Jesus, Abner against David, they both turned. They were both from the tribe of Benjamin. They were both late to the party. Paul came to Christ later on after the initial outpouring. Abner defected to David after he had been established a little bit. They were both called to gather outsiders. Abner was called, sent by David to go gather the 11 tribes. Paul was called and sent by Jesus to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They both had a greater reach potential than those that were before them. Abner could influence 10 tribes as opposed to those in his administration who could only influence one. Paul was able to influence the entire Gentile world, whereas the other apostles seemed to be emphasizing their ministry to only those that were of Israel. They both had a greater reach potential, and both of them were sent by their master to do it. Another thing they had in common is that both of them were resisted from within. The Apostle Paul was greatly resisted by Christians in Jerusalem that had trouble with the boundaries that seemed to be being broken by Paul as he would go outside and preach the gospel to Gentiles. And they committed themselves to undoing and thwarting his ministry, which was a valid ministry of God. And we see Joab killing Abner at the moment of his greatest influence potential because of the threat that it would be to his place and his power and his reputation in the kingdom. That's an amazing parallel. Abner knew that he could reach people the way that that God had equipped him to, and David let him go do it. Joab didn't understand it. Joab didn't like him. Joab couldn't control him, so Joab killed him with an excuse. Now here's the application, and then we're done. Listen, if you get wrapped up in a system A church system, an ecclesiastical system, a spiritual system, the order, the hierarchy, the business, the model. If you get caught up in a system and in the process draw back from the Savior, it is only a matter of time before you become a Joab. You will be one that crucifies Christians, even if it's just character assassination, cutting down a tree that's bearing fruit. It's only a matter of time. In Luke chapter 9, verse 49 and 50, Jesus was approached by James and John, and they said, hey, Master, we saw these guys, and they were casting out a demon in your name, but they weren't part of our group, and we forbade them. Aren't you proud? And Jesus said, no. He said, don't forbid them. He said, he that is not against us is on our part. He said, why are you doing that? That's counterproductive. They're doing the right thing. Like, why would you rebuke them because they're not part of our system?'" Paul would say, and Jesus also would say, judge nothing before the time. You don't understand everything that God is doing. You don't have perfect knowledge of it. Jesus would say, in my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he puts us in places. He puts us even in systems where we're going to grow and thrive and where his kingdom can be advanced. But that doesn't mean that we understand every system that God is using. Okay? Another one in Deuteronomy, it's been where I've at in devotions, but it's Deuteronomy chapter uh, 19, verse 14. It talks about landmarks in, in the land. And it says this, just listen to it. It says, it says, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in your inheritance, but you shall inherit, or, or which you shall inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess it. So in other words, God says, I've, I've created these boundaries and these borders in this land, and I've allotted that certain tribes live in certain areas. And I don't expect that the people that live way up in Dan are going to understand what's going on way down in Judah, and you don't have to. You don't have to have perfect knowledge of it. He says, but don't move the landmarks around. Just be where you are and be content there, and don't try to change everything around. And that's what he's basically saying there to that whole thing. Um, Gosh, I'm getting, I I oversaturated this. But anyways, 1 Timothy 4, verse 13 through 16. You say, well, what's the solution then? Like, what what are we to do? Then, if, if we're not to be cutting Christians, cutting ministries, stabbing things, you know, bleeding them out, what are we supposed to be doing? Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, till I come. And receive this as though Jesus said it. He says, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. In other words, you, you read your Bible, study to show yourself approved. And he says, neglect not the gift that is in you. What has God given you to do? What's your ministry? What is your potential reach? Who has God given you influence over? Don't neglect the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And then he says this, meditate upon these things, give yourself wholly to them, listen, that your profiting may appear unto all. If you stick with Jesus and you dig into his word and you walk in his truth and you use what God has given you to influence the people that are around you, your life is going to be blessed in such a way that people are going to look at you as the standard and say, that's the way I want to live my Christian life. You don't have to go around cutting everyone who does it different. You do what God has given you to do. That's what we're supposed to do. Paul is essentially saying, he says, uh, um, where's that? put that last verse back up there again. Um, yeah. Do you see that? What does it say? It says, take heed to yourself. Do you know what that's King James for? Mind your business. <laughs> take heed to yourself. You say, okay, what about heresy? What about extortion? What about corruption? What about these things that happen. What about, what about, what about? Aren't we to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints? Isn't apologetics, you know, defending, isn't, isn't that a part of it? Yes, it absolutely is. And I want to point you to the greatest apologist of all time, the Apostle John, okay? And here's what John says to us. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, and he is talking in the context of defending the faith. He talks about the Antichrist, and he says that here's the, here's the heresy, They deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's the heresy. They are pushing Jesus away. It's not about Jesus. Jesus is not the Son of God. Jesus did not die and rise again. Jesus isn't the sacrifice for your sins. It's not about Jesus. He says that's the heresy. Okay, that we're going to fight against, and here's how you're going to fight against it. He says, "You, First John two twenty, you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things." What does that mean? It means that when you, as a spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ, follower of Him, hear something or see something that you know is off, there is an unction that exists within you from the Spirit of God that says, ah, "I'm not sure about that." It's an unction. All right, now listen to what he goes on to say down in verse 26. He says, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. They would try to deceive you. They're gonna to try to lead you astray. Here's the solution. He says, but the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and you don't need that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall what? Abide in him. Okay. God is going to take care of that. He's going to lead you the right way. You cling to Jesus. You stay yoked to Jesus. Don't go cutting down things that, that you don't know if God maybe is using those things or not. Don't be a Joab. That's point one. Point two, it's much shorter. Trust me, we're done then. Okay. Point two is that if you are an Abner, if you've been crucified by Christians. If you have been wounded by churches, or by believers, or by pastors, or by mentors in the faith, if you have been wounded, you say, well, what, what exactly does it mean? You, you have been lured at some point in your life into being a pawn to build someone else's vision. You gave and served and sweated, only to find that ultimately you were slandered and discarded. You were brought in to something only so that you could then be suppressed and held down you were given a seat at the table and then silenced there often you'll hear about a pastor who takes a pastor and he's hired by a pastoral search committee and then no sooner does he accept the position but then he's controlled and muzzled and silenced and crucified essentially by the very people that asked him to lead them because they don't want to give him power You'll hear about musicians that are utilized but then marginalized, ultimately maligned. You'll hear about a young woman who's taken advantage of by an unhealthy pastor. She becomes his pleasure purpose of a Christian, a pastor that has a faulty system. You're going to hear about maybe you've been one of those that have been chewed up by the organization, by the system that is church. It's very important that you hear this if you have been crucified by Christians, it is not Jesus. Jesus did not do that to you. Jesus didn't ordain for that to happen to you. Jesus weeps when that happens to you. Did you see the response of David? Did you see that three times it is emphasized very clearly in the passage that David did not order this? This that Joab did was not a reflection of David or his kingdom. David wept. David followed the casket, and he he praised the valiancy of Abner. And then he said, Joab's day will come. He's going to answer for the things that he did. And you've got to know that if you've been wounded by Christians, that is not a reflection of Jesus. Look at Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. It tells us in Hebrews, it says that such a high priest becomes us who is holy and harmless. The church is not harmless. You can get chewed up here, okay? But Jesus is harmless. He's undefiled, and he's separate from sinners. He's different. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be a part of the church. Love with vulnerability. Put yourself out there and serve as unto the Lord but keep your eyes on him. And if it's happened to you, use it to take your eyes off of people and to fix your eyes on Jesus. I had a conversation with a brother just earlier this week and we were talking about the flesh, you know, that nasty part of you that you hate, and you do things that you don't like. And he was telling how, you know, he something happened and he you know, reverted right back, and he almost hurt somebody, you know, and he was so disappointed with himself, because he said he thought he had come, he had gotten past that, he was further than that, and I said, no, no, it don't work like that, I said, the flesh is always the flesh, that's never going to change, when you get back into that mode, you're always going to go right there, and he goes, no, no, that's discouraging, then he goes, not you, and I go, yeah, me, I go, yeah, me, and he goes, no, bro, he goes, you're bursting my bubble, he goes, I got you way up here, I said, get me down from there quick, get me down quick, don't look at people, Okay, look at Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. That's where they need to be, and beware of the system. Listen to me, and I don't know, maybe I'm only talking to a couple of you right now in this room or that are hearing my voice now or in the future. But listen, if you are chasing a position or a title or a role in the church, if you want to be something influential, if you want your name to be heralded, be careful. Because you are a Joab in the making. You cannot be ambitious in the body of Christ and not begin to become competitive in time. It will happen. I've been there. I understand it. So what's the remedy? The remedy is this. Make little of yourself. Make much of Jesus. Thank you. you. But until I come, said Paul, Give yourself to reading, to exhortation, and doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in you by the laying on of hands of the prophecy and take heed to yourself and to what you've received of the Lord and give yourself wholly to it that your profiting may appear unto all. Joab or Abner or David. Father, we just thank you tonight for this and we do pray, Lord, that you protect us from the system that is a part of it but yet can grind us up and Jesus I pray that we would be so fixed so set upon you that our eyes would be so securely placed upon you that not only would we not be deceived but Lord that every day of our life would be a joy that our system would be one of drawing strength from you that as you add to our lives we wouldn't draw back from God and become twisted. But that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of you and that your love would permeate every area of our hearts so lord help us in this thank you lord for your truth that you lay these things out for us And we pray that we would honor you with our words our speech the way that we treat one another our attitude towards other churches other ministries and other places help it to be right lord that we wouldn't tarnish or tear down Something that you're building and planting or using or even tolerating in patience. Give us wisdom, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. We pray these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.